But it's so great to have you uh, with us. We'd love to help you get involved in the life of the church. And um, we've been doing this um, series of talks over the last few weeks, looking at the kingdom of heaven, looking at seven signs in John's gospel that teach us about the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to look at one of those uh, today, and then we'll pray for one another at the end. Last week, our staff team and interns went on a 24-hour retreat into the country, and the idea was to um, spend some time together to encourage each other to learn more about one another. And then on the second day, um, for the whole day, we had a coach um, come and teach us something called Insights Discovery. And the Insights Discovery um, process is about understanding yourself better, understanding your style of communication, your personality, your characteristics, how you relate to other people, and how perhaps we could work more effectively as a team. This is what she told you. This is the insights discovery uh, wheel coming up. So what basically the um, theory suggests there are, broadly speaking, and then it breaks down into sort of a million different personality types, but um, broadly speaking, there are four um, categories of personality type. Fiery red, those who lead with fiery red energy, who are competitive, demanding, determined, strong-willed, and purposeful. Those who lead with sunshine yellow, who are sociable, dynamic, demonstrative, enthusiastic, and persuasive. Those who lead with earth green, who are caring, encouraging, sharing, patient, and relaxed. And finally, those who lead with cool blue, cautious, precise, deliberate, questioning, and formal. And so you got, um, we didn't know what each one of us was, uh, but what we did is we started by all sort of 24 of us being in a room, and we were each given three color-coded cards, and so each one of us had three red cards, three yellow, three blue, and three green cards, and on that card was a phrase that described the kind of person who was this color. And so, for example, on a red card, it would say, um, this person has strong opinions and shares them directly. Or on a green card, it would say, this person is kind and compassionate to those around. And then the task for each one of us was to walk around the room and to give those cards to other people in the room that we felt that phrase best described. Um, So at the end of um, that session, I ended up with 24 red cards, (laughs) 15 yellow cards, and one blue card. So I'd like to make it incredibly clear that your vicar is neither patient, kind, compassionate. So if that's what you're looking for... You need to go somewhere else. Fortunately, Liz, my wife, was very green. So if you, if you need compassion, go to Liz. Um, we, um, we then sort of like broke it down and like did loads more exercises. But we were then given these um, new identities as a red-yellow inspirer or a green-blue coordinator or a blue-red reformer. And so we all, I, I don't know if there's something about our team, but we were all really chuffed with our new identities. We're like, well, I'm a blue-red reformer, so I'm going to just go and reform some stuff. Um, we were all really owning them. And it really helped us to learn more about how to communicate with one another. We found that we were wearing these badges of our new identity with real pride. And we were thinking, this is going to transform the church. This is the best thing. And there have been some very positive outcomes of our time together. I've also noticed the weeks since we've been back, people making comments like, well, I didn't invite them to lunch because they're blue. And blues like to be left alone. So I just ignored them. Or, um, well, I didn't give them any details because they're yellow. So they don't have any details about how to run the project. But they don't like them. They're yellow. And I was like, okay, I've also been told that I can't wander around the office with everybody's communication preferences, reading them out loud, and then come up with fun scenarios where I have to communicate with them in funny styles. Liz thinks that's inappropriate. So um, we've been given these new identities, and it made me realize that our identity is so important. How we describe ourselves, how others describe us, 
how we see ourselves can have an impact on our relationships with other people, our self-esteem, our confidence, and even our mental health. I want to talk a bit about identity today, because what I've realized is that sometimes our identity has been created by things that other people have said is true about us. Oh, um, you're not clever enough to do that. Or you're so confident, surely you can't be afraid of doing that. I wonder if you were asked to describe what your identity is, how you would describe yourself, and whether it would be things that you think are true about yourself or other people think are true about you. And how accurate would that be? We're going to read um, one of these signs from John's Gospel and see what it can teach us this morning. It's in John chapter 9, and it's verses 1 to 7, and it's coming up on the screen now. It says this, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. After I graduated from university, I moved to London for what I thought was my dream job. I was working for an arm of the BBC called BBC Broadcast. And BBC Broadcast make trailers and adverts for BBC programmes to advertise them. So if you see an advert for a TV programme on TV, this sort of branch of the BBC makes those adverts. But they also try and sell BBC programmes around the world to other people. And BBC products and people, they sort of sell them around the world. And I worked quite closely with a lady called Daisy, who was head of business development. And um, I would edit uh, and cut showreels of some of our television programs, put them onto DVDs, and then we would send them to different television networks around the world to see if that television network might like to buy that program. And late one Friday afternoon, we were cutting showreels and trailers and making them into DVDs to send to the heads of um, 50 TV networks around the world. And Daisy, who was this incredibly... um, incredibly uh, tall and fierce woman who was making a real name for herself at the BBC. She um, had handwritten 50 notes personalised to these people that she'd spent sort of a couple of years networking with to get to know, so that when she sent the DVD, it would sort of be personalised and um, they sort of might take it quite seriously. I suggested to Daisy, oh, you know, don't put that in the slow and unreliable BBC internal post. Let me take that to the post office for you. And she said, oh, thanks, Alex. What, what initiative? I said, that's right, Daisy. That's what I'm like. Um, so I picked these 50 DVDs up, and I sort of ran down to the post office, all really excited. On the way, a mate of mine called me about graduation ball that was coming up, which I was also quite excited about. But anyway, I popped in, popped them in the post box, came back up to the office, and Daisy said, oh, Alex, um, how much do I owe you for postage? And I went, yes, post- postage. I'll double check. I ran back to the post office, realizing that in my excitement of taking the call, I just popped them all in the post box without any stamps on, without anything, realizing that what would happen is they'd probably get there in about a month, and then the television network would be charged for the privilege of receiving them with this handwritten note from Daisy. So I said to the woman in the post office, oh, has the post been collected? And she said, oh, yeah, postman's just taken it. It's gone to the delivery office. I was like, oh, okay. And so then I said to the woman, I was like, well, did you not see me coming in with my envelopes? And she's like, yeah, you're on the phone. And I was like, 
You could have asked if they had stamps. She's like, yeah, I could have done. I said, do the postman just take the letters without checking they've all got stamps on? And she's like, yes, yes, he does. It's like, well, I think this is a ludicrous system. I don't know what you think you're playing out. It's a terrible place. I sort of sauntered back up to the office. And again, I was confronted with Daisy, who said, oh, what, let me know about the postage. And so I think, will do. So I sat down and did what anybody sort of upstanding young man with integrity did. I wrote Daisy an email. <laughs> Dear Daisy, I'm so sorry to inform you that the packages you requested to be posted were in fact posted without stamps. You'll notice I used the passive voice. They were in fact posted. I didn't post them. I'd like to highlight the failure of the British post office system for not correcting the issue earlier. There have been a series of mistakes by the post office team. The first, not recognising that they needed postage when I was going into the post office. The second being that the postman didn't check the envelopes in the post box before putting them in his sack and taking them to the delivery office. Kind regards, Alex. I then popped to the canteen to buy a coffee. I thought, I'll nip out. Upon my return to the office, I expected to be confronted with Daisy going, oh, flipping post office. She didn't actually see it that way, weirdly. In fact, she stood up. It was the worst, honestly, it was the worst moment of my career. She stood up in front of the entire open plan office and shouted and screamed at me for about three minutes using all sorts of colourful language while I just sort of shrank. I was like, yes, so sorry, so sorry. She, didn't, she wasn't interested in my blame. Anyway, I wonder if you ever have made a mistake like that and you're always looking for somebody to blame. When we're children, we blame our parents for not taking us swimming more often because if they had done, we'd be Olympic gold medalists by now. Or we blame them for not making us practice the piano because we could be the modern day Mozart. Whereas now that I am a parent, I think it's successful if I can get my kids off the couch from watching Peppa Pig for five minutes. In the passage we read, it says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is the human attempt to rationalize pain. It's blame. Who can we blame for this man's misfortune? You know, it's so easy to blame someone else for the circumstances in our life. It's easy to blame people for where we've ended up. But the problem with blame is it does two things. It destroys relationships. If you're blaming somebody for the circumstances in your life, that relationship will lose intimacy. It will lack connectivity. You'll lose genuine love and admiration, swallowed up because you blame them for something. It reinforces the identity. As long as you're blaming somebody else for the circumstances in your life, you're never going to recall, uh, regain control. So if that's the human response to suffering is blame, what does Jesus do? Well, as we look at the passage, Jesus does three things. He removes the man's condemnation, he uses his weakness, and he sends him away. I'm going to look at those three things quickly, and then we're going to pray for one another. Jesus removes his condemnation. The blind man's identity was completely shaped by his blindness. If you look, it was shaped by his physical blindness. He couldn't work. He was sat at the edge of the road begging. It cast him outside of society. It rendered him unable to participate. But much more significantly than that, it was assumed that his physical blindness was a result of sin. The disciples guessed it was either his parents' sin or his sin. And in culture, they believed that if you had, a, in their culture at the time, they believed that if you had a physical disability, that was either a, a, 
caused by the sin of your um, parents, or they even believed that a child could sin in the womb and then would be born with a defect that was um, because of their sin. This um, blindness, therefore, made him unclean because sin was so much worse than a physical disability. It was the cause that people found unattractive. Jesus, you'll notice, deals with the bigger issue first. He doesn't start by dealing with the physical blindness. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Before Jesus done anything to heal him physically, he's given him the most important thing. He's given him freedom from the condemnation that has hung over him for years and shaped his identity. Jesus completely transforms the man's identity in a moment because for his entire life, he's identified as a sinner or the son of a sinner. Jesus transforms his identity by removing his condemnation and shame. I remember um, before I uh, had ever been to church, before I would have called myself a Christian, I, um, had quite a, I had quite a bad temper. I was quite angry a lot of the time. And I remember a couple of occasions it really played out, and I sort of like really, or maybe it was the post office, that's probably what it was. Um, it played out on a couple of occasions where I sort of frightened myself, and I realized that I always thought, oh, I've got this temper and I feel quite angry, because that's what my dad was like. My dad was really angry when we were growing up and used to scream and shout, and it was part of his identity, part of his character. And so I thought, oh, you know what, maybe that's just part of who I am as well. And when I became a Christian, weirdly, I... Um, didn't really notice, but like a few months later, I noticed that I just didn't feel very angry. And in fact, now I really struggle to get angry even with our kids. Liz does all the disciplining in our house because I start by and then I start laughing at them and like tickling them. And I can't, so I'm supposed to, be, but it's really interesting that Jesus removed that part of my identity. And it isn't part of how I would describe myself anymore. I wonder if there are parts of your identity this morning that actually Jesus says, you know, that might not be part of who you are. That might not be something that I want for you. Jesus removes his condemnation, changes his identity. And secondly, Jesus uses his weakness. As well as explaining that it wasn't his sin or his parents' sin that made him blind, Jesus does offer up an explanation. He says, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is a bit tricky because what I don't want people to hear is, oh, God made this man blind so that Jesus could show off by performing a miracle. That's not what's going on. Instead, um, I was reading this morning, a theologian called David Garland suggests this. Says, it's not as though God decided this particular individual should be blind from birth so that he would have the opportunity to show how great a work he could perform. It's rather that he overruled the misfortune so that both the man and those who would see the miracle would come to realize that Jesus is light of the world. What if your greatest trial could become your greatest triumph? What if that part of your identity that you think makes you weak, inadequate, and unqualified could in fact be the exact part of your identity that God wants to use to demonstrate his glory? Paul Cowley, who's a vicar in London and a friend of ours, ran away from home when he was 15. He was brought up in a really difficult household and he lived a life of petty crime. He lived in a squat in Manchester. He got caught up in drugs, in a gang, in crime and he ended up in prison. 
After leaving prison, he joined the army for 16 years. He became a staff sergeant, did three tours in Northern Ireland and in the Falklands as well. And many years after all of this had happened in his life, he became a Christian and he felt called to become a priest. And he was so ashamed of his past and what he'd done that he wasn't sure he was qualified. But little did he know that God would use his insecurities, his weaknesses, and those part of his life that he felt would make him unqualified to demonstrate God's glory. Since then, Paul has pioneered Alpha in prisons, and Alpha now runs in 80% of prisons in the UK. He started an organization called Caring for Ex-Offenders that support people being released from prison, an organization that we run here in Portsmouth as well. He started Alpha for Forces, and he started a charity called the William Wilberforce Trust, which includes a counter-human trafficking unit, a homeless drop-in, debt counseling, and courses dealing with money, debt, depression, and recovery. I wonder if, for you, what might it be like if God used those areas of your life that you maybe feel ashamed of to demonstrate his glory and his power? I love this thing that you might have seen before. Um, It's about... uh, pottery makers, people in Japan, when they break a piece of crockery, instead of just throwing it away, they, well, I don't know if they do it that much anymore, but anyway, um, they used to do this thing called kintsui, where um, if they had a broken pot, instead of throwing it in the bin, they would repair it, but they would repair it by gluing it back together with this um, liquid gold, and you can see this pot. And so when it's repaired, the cracks, the broken parts of it, don't just blend in, but they're the sort of most attractive, shiniest, best part of the crockery. It's the same with us. In our weakness and vulnerability, we connect with other people. In our weakness, we connect with God and we experience God's power. What if Jesus wants to use that part of your identity to show his glory? So Jesus removes his condemnation. He uses his weakness. And thirdly and finally, Jesus sends him away. So Jesus and the disciples have a discussion about this man. Jesus completely changes the man's life by taking away the shame and condemnation. Then Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on his eyes. But what I noticed is that the man hasn't said anything up until this point. They come across this man who says nothing to them. They stop. They have a discussion about his life. They argue about why he's a blind man in the first place. And meanwhile, you remember, he's blind, not deaf. He's just sat there being like, great, thanks, guys. And then Jesus spits on him and puts mud on his eyes. It's like, cheers, mate. Anything else you want to do while you're here? And then he says, now go away. And he's like, I mean, I was here first, so why don't you go away? Really weird that this is the way that it goes. Jesus sends him to a pool called Siloam. And it's interesting, the Bible notes that this pool means sent. Why does the Bible include that? The pool... um, actually was made up of water that was um, secretly piped into Jerusalem so that if the city was ever under attack, they would have a water source coming in. And it was actually this sort of um, river of water that was called Sent because it was water sent into the city. But then the pool became known as Sent as well. Jesus sends him to Sent. Why does John think it's important to mention that? Let's go back a couple of verses. Jesus says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. 
I said at the beginning, we've been doing this series over the past few weeks on the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven, that as though on a really cloudy, dark day, there are beams of sunlight coming through the clouds, and that's this picture of heaven breaking into earth, the picture of when Jesus, God, became a human and lived on earth, this inbreaking of heaven on earth. And this sign in John's gospel is pointing to something. It's pointing to the eventual reality when this kingdom of heaven will become permanent and true for everybody. And what John is saying is this, that he's using this man to demonstrate that heaven is coming, a sign pointing to a time when nobody will be blind anymore. And he involves the man in his healing and he, in his healing, and he sends him out. Because this is a sign to each one of us that we're meant to play a role in seeing heaven breaking into earth, that we are sent. What does the man do? Without question or complaint, he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. And as a result, he sees a miracle. You know, if he hadn't been obedient to what Jesus has said, he'd still be blind. Although worse, because he'd be covered in mud. This is the ultimate transformation of his identity. This poor, blind beggar would be sent by Jesus to complete a miracle that would point to the kingdom of heaven. His new identity, no longer a blind roadside beggar with no role, but instead an apostle of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, sent to bring light and life and to see miracles. You know, that's our identity. That's who each one of us is. No matter how useless we may feel we are, no matter how weak, wherever we've been, wherever we've gone, that it's possible for our identity to com be completely transformed into people who are sent by Jesus. When we've known Jesus and experienced our love, we are sent to bring heaven to earth. And I believe that we're on the cusp of seeing something really significant in our city here in Portsmouth. The church, this church, is a sign of the inbreaking of heaven on earth. You know, we've gone from 15 clueless, young, some students, some wannabe students, two years ago, to a church of 600 people, one church, three locations, five Sunday services. This church is a sign that something is happening in this city. Even the Times newspaper at the end of last year wrote an article that said, atheism is dead as the UK gets spiritual. More people going to church, more people praying, a sense of the spirit on the move. You know, I don't think that it's revival. I think it's a glimpse of a future reality. And we're seeing God move in amazing ways through the work that all you are doing. On Thursday, two women in our congregation were nominated for inspirational awards for the work that we do with SPA 61, connecting with vulnerable women in our city and showing them love and giving them dignity and supporting them. On, Thursday, on Wednesday afternoon, we started an after-school club for young people from a local school who could come in, have sweets, hang out, and um, the plan is to then do devotionals with them as well. Incredible things happening at their hours as people worship throughout the night. I asked, um, there's a girl called Rachel who's volunteering in kids' church this morning. I said, what was your sense of what God was saying over those 12 hours? And she said, I've just sen sensed that God is sending us out to see Portsmouth transformed. 
The question is, will we go? Will we be obedient to what Jesus is saying when he sends us? Where might he be sending you? Who is he calling you to show a miracle to? Because your new identity and my new identity is one who is sent by Jesus in our weakness with no condemnation. Should we pray for one another? Would you like to stand? We're going to pray.